This is episode 38 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and joining me tonight is one of the newest contributors here at the Heavy Hockey Network and a hockey referee with more than 20 years of experience, Brett Luchansky, a.k.a. Surveyor Brett. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. It's good to have you on the podcast. I, I know you've been a busy guy lately. You were on the ice last night, but uh, did you have a chance to watch the Oilers game on Saturday? Uh, I saw bits and pieces, a few highlights of a few goals, but uh, not too much, actually, because it was a late game. <laughs> What's that? Well, yeah, I know. I mean, it's a, it was a 9 p.m. start here in Saskatoon, so... It's even uh, an hour later during the winter, but uh, what's the what's the schedule been like for you lately, uh, refing hockey? Busy, busy. We, uh, I don't know. I, I can take as many games as they'll give me as many games as I'll take. Basically, I feel like uh, they talk about having shortages in officials in minor hockey, but I think it's everywhere. I'm just bricking uh, beer league now, but <laughs> uh, we have a pretty big beer league here, rec league. Uh, CCRHL, we have, I don't know how many teams this year, probably 150. So there's lots of games every night. And I can imagine a lot of those games are going on when the Oilers are playing. Uh, yeah, or sometimes they're dropping the puck after the Oilers <laughs> are already done. Uh, there's quite a few 10-15 and 10-30 starts. Oh yeah, uh, well that's that's classic men's league hockey. Yeah, but uh, I... <laughs> It's okay for me. It allows me to get my stuff done at home with my family and stuff and then leave the house. Uh, it's a little tough waking up in the mornings the next day, though. <laughs> I can imagine. And I mean, just to, just to touch on the Oilers for a second, they're off to such a fantastic start this year. They improved their record to 13-4-0 after beating the Chicago Blackhawks this weekend. Uh, and even though they've been a good team for the last couple of years, this is the most fun I've had watching the Oilers since the 2017 playoffs. How about yourself? Yes, I think it's very fun. And I also think, I feel this year that even when they are down or they get down, I have confidence or think that there's a chance they could always do something and always bring it back. Like if they get down a goal or too early or even late in the second or even in the third period, I feel like they have a chance in pretty much almost every game. And, you know, that's something we didn't see from this team for a long time. Even in 2019-20, when, when they really started to turn it around under Ken Holland and Dave Tippett, that was the year they finally made it back to the playoffs with, with Connor since the 2017 year, obviously. And it, it still seemed that there were some, some growing pains that year. They still had to learn some tough lessons. And not not every game was a sure win. And this year... N nothing is guaranteed either, but I, I feel more confident when they're down 2 nothing in a game that they're going to come back than I even did a couple years ago. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, well, I mean, we have one guy that can do it. Uh, you've seen a couple of goals there last little while here against the Jets and the Rangers. And we might be talking uh, about that later on in the show, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. When he scored that Jets goal... Like 30 seconds after they had, the Jets took the lead, I, yeah. I was texting a buddy and I was just like, so like maybe he could just do that earlier. Like, why does he always have to wait till till we're down by one? Yeah. He makes it look like he could just do it whenever he wants. Well, even in the Rangers game, when they were down 4-1, 
when you have two players as good as Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, you're never out of a game. Even if it's the third period, you're, the, the deficit is two or three goals. They can get you back in a hockey game as long as they get rolling. Yeah, and that's why I think I, there's not too many games on the schedule where you go into it thinking it's a, it's a for sure we're not, we don't even have a chance. I, I don't feel that way this year. Well, I mean, I, mean, right I know they now, do lose. They do lose games, and they lose to some teams. Maybe they shouldn't, but well, there's not have, any games on the schedule where I think there's no chance. Yeah, the Oilers currently have the third highest points percentage in the entire league. So you know, other than the Panthers and the Hurricanes, just they should view every team basically at this point as a team that you're better than. And I, I mean, I don't know if the Oilers are going to be. Uh, third place in the league when the season ends. But as of right now, they are one of the top five teams in the NHL. I I agree. <laughs> I hope they can keep it going. Yeah, I mean, they I don't have expect... Their, they have a little Sorry. bit of avert adversity coming here now because of their injuries they're kind of running right. into. And hopefully that just doesn't get any worse, but... Yeah, and I don't expect them to win 13 out of 17 games every stretch for the rest of the year. But the fact that they've got off to this strong start, I think, is going to carry them a long way, especially if they want to try and win a division title this year. Well, and how nice is it that you've banked, what is it, 26 points, 27 points, and now you have a little bit of an injury bug, but you've already banked 13 wins. I mean, injuries up and down the lineup, right? You've got... Uh, your number one goalie and Mike Smith out, your number one defenseman and Darnell Nurse out. Uh, Derek Ryan had a concussion, though it sounds like he's coming back from that. But yeah, it's uh, they've been banged up a little bit here and still managed to you know, win those, those uh, two games on their short homestand. Yeah, and imagine if they only had to beat one team out there every night instead of the refs <laughs> and the other team, as I feel some like would say. I feel like you're alluding to some questions we're going to get to in a bit here. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, before we talk more Oilers, uh, let's just find out a little bit about your hockey background. You're a first-time guest on the show, and anytime I have someone on for the first time, I like to hear about how they got interested in hockey, how they became an Oilers fan. So let's just start there. When did you start playing hockey, and what made you want to become a referee? Uh, Well, I started playing hockey from the youngest age like i think whatever age that is it was called timbits back then i don't know what it's called now i think they still have initiation but uh this all that and novice and adam and then up to peewee uh but that was back i think they changed the ages since then but uh when i played peewee it was body checking i played goalie uh for a few years as well uh and i think at the end of peewee i just didn't want to play anymore. I think I got, I think I got uh, rocked around a couple times, got hit, got laid out. I don't know. Uh, I didn't want to play, and my parents kind of said, "Well, you should try this, or you should, you know, stay involved. Go, go skate. You can make a few bucks too." As a 13, 14 year old, refing novice games is pretty lucrative, actually. Yeah, when you're that age, making I don't know what they make now. God, I haven't ref minor hockey in years and especially novice games but it's got to be 20 something dollars an hour i I don't know what uh ice hockey refs make but a buddy of mine refs ball hockey for men's league and he makes 20 dollars a game 
Right. Well, I mean, even when I was still doing minor, I know novice was, I think it was up to 20 and it was only an hour slot, like time slot. So, I mean, that's pretty good for a 13, 14 year old and it's all cash. So, I mean, that's kind of why I started it. Um, And I just stuck with it. I almost quit uh, in my second year uh, after a game at this I don't know if you know. I don't know if you, how much you know Edmonton. It's called Tipton Arena. It's this little tiny. <laughs> I've heard of like it. shell. It's like it used to be an outdoor rink way back in the day, and they put a roof, and so it's pretty crappy. The setup is not good. Like you have to walk uh, through the off the ice through the penalty gates, then like down the hallway, which is the same hallway that the stands empty out of. Right? Like, it's not an ideal design. Uh, but, I mean, we see that all the time, even in new rinks. But, um, so I was, like, 13 or 14. And I don't know what happened in the game. Like, I can't remember. But I was going down that hallway to get to the room. And I was, like, accosted by some woman, mom, and, like, bumped into, you know how when people bump into you, like, kind of on purpose with their shoulder? Yeah into your like i don't know chest or whatever she did that to me to like a 14 year old kid and i don't know what she said so i'm like a terrible game or whatever and like so i'm still 14 i'm getting picked up after the game and i i guess i was probably pretty quiet or whatever and i didn't want to ref anymore oh why why what happened like everything's been going fine so far and that told them what i told my parents what happened and they actually uh they convinced me to keep trying, but they also got my ref assigner uh, that for the zone I was in, Gary Greenow. He was a really good, excuse me, he was a really good uh, assigner and like referee and mentor. He actually called me and like spoke to me for, I don't know, quite a long time and convinced me to keep going. And then ever since then, I never looked back. But, uh, I mean, it's amazing what happens to young kids at hockey arenas from adults uh, that would be completely inappropriate and not allowed anywhere else in society, honestly. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate to hear. And you, it, it's, it sucks when the parents take it to that level where they're more into it than the kid actually is and taking it more seriously it, sh- it should never get to that level it should all the fun should always be the top priority and i think that uh, even at the highest level and i've i've uh, done some play-by-play for some high level uh novice and adam and peewee tournaments but it's you know it's it's just a shame to to hear that but i'm glad it didn't deter you and you were, are still refing all these years later <laughs> no, you know no, i'm now i just keep coming back now <laughs> yeah and, and something else you said there kind of reminded me of my story too like i uh i started playing in in Saskatoon it's called pre novice so i guess you, initiation in other places but um i played in you know tiered hockey up until i was in peewee and that was my only year of body contact. I had two concussions that year. I was a real tall, skinny kid. And even though I had the the height on a lot of kids, they there were uh, guys out there who outweighed me 20 to 30 pounds. And I was just getting knocked around. And that was the last year that I played of 
contact hockey and I went to recreational hockey for the rest of my uh, non-contact hockey for the rest of my minor hockey career. But um, so I can kind of relate to what you're saying there. If you don't mind me asking, what year were you born? 1987. Okay, and I'm born in 89. So we're probably somewhat similar because peewee hockey was the year it was when contact uh, was being brought in in Saskatoon at the time. I think it changed to Bantam after I was done playing. I'm not sure if that's still the case now. I believe that's true. I think that's true here too. Yeah, Uh, they changed it. And I think they changed the aging too a little bit. And they don't even call it Peewee anymore. So. Yeah, there it's it's all under <laughs> under eighteen, under sixteen, under yeah. fourteen, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I was just going to ask next, uh, what are all the levels of hockey that you've officiated throughout your career? Uh, well, I mean, like I told you, I started off doing the little novice games on Saturday mornings. You do two or three in a row, uh, but I did work myself into what they call the A program here, which like is the Bantam AAA, the Bantam AA, the 15-year-olds, and Midget. It used to be called Midget AA. Uh, so I, I refereed uh, up to Midget AA, and they had a, a league called, it was called the Rural Edmonton Minor Midget. I don't know, 15-year-olds uh, AAA. That was some really good hockey. I don't know what it's called now. I'm sure there's something equivalent to it. There's also a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, non-sanctioned by Hockey Alberta like um, schools. What do they want to call themselves now? Hockey academy academies, academies. Yeah. and they play in their own leagues. Uh, that's come in since I left uh, doing minor hockey. So I mean, as a referee, I did all the way, all the Bantam AA, AAA stuff, all the way up to that midget AA. Uh, never did cross into the midget triple a i did junior c and then as a linesman i did do junior b Uh, and that's about as far as i got and then i had my son Uh, i didn't ref for a couple years and then i came back and i did do some minor hockey but then i get in doing rec hockey men's league which we have some we have 19 divs uh so there's quite a range from div one being the best to 19 being the the more beginner right Uh, so div one is quite strong i mean it's called rec hockey but i mean these guys are all they're all pretty much ex-junior players uh so it's pretty quick yeah i can imagine a lot of those you know upper tier minor um beer leagues are still pretty competitive hockey Oh, for sure. Like I said, those guys are pretty fast. I mean, most mm-hmm. of the time they're pretty chilled out and they take it easy, but it can it can get just like it can any pick of these up other sometimes. games. It can yeah. get like any of these other levels that I just listed off. Well, uh, on a Wednesday night, a Wednesday night at 11:30. <laughs> There's probably still a lot of competitive guys out there. And once the juices get flowing a little bit, it 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 kind of it turns into a real hockey game almost. Yeah, and it's funny. Like it's rec league, yeah. but like we play and then we go into playoffs and it changes. It's like <laughs> like it matters. Like I don't know, it's weird, but for sure. Well, you know, I I, I was going to ask you next, what's the toughest part about being a ref? And I wouldn't be surprised if it is when you were younger dealing with parents like that uh unfortunately that that one you were telling me about a minute ago but is that still the the toughest part uh about being a referee 
I think so. And I mean, dealing with now in my refereeing life now, I only have to deal with one. It's the players. Uh, Previously, you'd have players, coaches, and maybe parents. You know, as I got older, uh, the parents, I didn't even know, like, I didn't even hear them specifically. Like, you hear, I could hear the noise, and you can hear the the oohs and the ahs and the complaining or, but you, I don't know. I never heard like specific things from way up in the stands. And if you're a referee, you really got to be able to do that. Otherwise, I mean, you're going to be hearing a lot of things you probably don't want to. You have to kind of be able to shut your ears off, honestly, and just make it white noise in the background. Otherwise, uh, you'll be, you'll be listening to a lot of things you don't want to hear. No, for sure. And um, I was just wondering, that that's a, was unfortunately a, not a great story to hear, but do you have one or two really good stories uh, from games that you've worked over the years? Uh, well, I have one story from Minor Hockey Week. It's a big tournament every year in Edmonton. Uh, every team's in it from every every tier, every division, every age group. Uh, it's like one of the largest tournaments in, I don't even know if it's Canada or North America by like the number of teams, I think. Uh, and it's a little bit different. It's like always a, everything is a big rush. The ice times are shorter. It's run time, which I hate, by the way. Run time's the worst. It just, I don't think it solves anything. It just causes more problems, more arguments. <laughs> but anyways, um, uh, but anyway, so they do this. Overtime in minor hockey week, it it's very interesting because they want the game. The games can't end it in a tie because of the way they have the brackets set up. Um, they will start the overtime uh, five on five, like normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will only put one minute on the clock. They will play one minute, then the horn will go, and then they will drop a player uh, to four on four, and they will do that every minute until they get down to one on one. Like one skate, one skater and a goalie versus one skater and a goalie, basically. Yeah. Uh, so most of the time, it does get down, maybe not to one on one, but it does get down to lower numbers. Uh, so this game went to overtime. I think it, I believe it was a final. It was a pretty high level peewee. I had to be sixteen or older. I'm trying to remember, but I had to be sixteen or older because I know I drove myself. Uh, and it's at one of those rinks. Is called the Coronation. That's pretty big stands, and they were pretty full, so it was loud. It was full. Like you know, there's the game probably ended the before. There's the game going on after. Uh, we went to overtime. It went back and forth. We got all the way down to the one on one. We have an offensive zone face off. Uh, you could pull your goalie too, right? So the guy pulls his goalie, so now he's got two skaters against one skater and the goalie on the other team. Uh, Faceoff goes down. Uh, puck moves around in the corner. Guy passes the puck out. Coming towards the defenseman, the one guy, offensive guy, comes down with two hands, smashes the guy's stick out of his hands. Puck goes by him to him. He puts it in the net. Right, so it's a goal, overtime goal. Everyone go crazy. Uh, everyone empty the benches. 
uh, throw your sticks on the ice, helmets, everything. And I'm standing there. I'm standing there with my arm in the air. Going to call that the guy for smashing the guy's stick out of his hands. Uh, and I'm like waving it, but no one's paying attention to me because they just won the game. And we finally, they finally figured it out. And obviously we're not happy. And half the stands is like irate. Um, <laughs> and of course, um, in these rules, once you get down to that many players, if you take a penalty, like they're not going to take a, a player off the ice and make it one on nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's penalty shot the other way. And you can imagine what happens next. Team that su- thought they won. The other team takes their penalty shot and they score. Obviously uh, it has to go that way. That's just <laughs> how it always goes. Other team wins the final of minor hockey week, PB oh, or whatever it is that year. And so that was, one, <laughs> that was one where it was bad. It was. And that was another rink that I, I hate that rink. I never <laughs> liked refing there. And that one, you have to come off and down the stairs, like right through the lobby to get, the hallway that was a bad one at least i had two linesmen i had a two (laughs) linesmen with me on that one to get to the room and that must have been a tough one basically (laughs) change in the room and wait there for however long till everyone else went home it's like i don't uh, want to deal with the parents (laughs) no well because you got to walk back out the same lobby to get out of there like these rings here they don't think about that stuff um but that's the one i have that one from minor i always remember that one um yeah <laughs> no that's uh i mean i don't envy you in those situations and i, I mean like my dad refed hockey f- uh for 25 years as well doing you know almost entirely men's league games but um it's uh, he always wanted me to have a, a certain level of respect for refs growing up because of that but it's just like i think watching a lot of nhl hockey in recent years it it, it makes some of that uh admiration for officials go down a little bit but for for guys like yourself who are just out there you know roughing games for kids i mean it sucks that it ever gets to that situation where you have to actually wait out uh these families until they go home so you don't have to deal with any of that nonsense (laughs) yeah yeah well i mean yeah some you uh, as a referee you 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 need to be you can be cordial and friendly with players on the ice and coaches and everything. And it's always good to try to start that way. Um, but I mean, in the end you have to make a call sometimes that no people aren't going to like, and, and you're not going to be friends with everyone at the end of the game. Yeah. Like, you impossible. just have to, you just have to accept that. Like it's just not going to happen, but Earth. you do hope that you can keep it to the game and you don't have to make it personal. And and if you ref that team again next week or next month, that you can start fresh again. For sure. And and listen, man, it's been awesome to hear a little bit about your career wearing the stripes. Now let's hear about uh, your life as an Oilers fan a bit. So we'll just start from the beginning. How did you become a, a fan of the team? You know, I don't know. I don't have a specific thing. I think I just, you know, I'm from Edmonton. I lived here all my life. So I think I was just... That was the team. That's the team in town. So, I mean, that's the team you're going to like, right? <laughs> I think that's yeah. pretty much it. I mean, I, 
I've talked to some other guests over the years who have been from Edmonton, and they said, you know, there was a time before the team really got back on track in the late 90s where liking the Oilers wasn't the cool thing to do, say, in the mid-90s when they were really struggling. And then it seemed like once they made it back to the playoffs in 97, it sort of rejuvenated this fan base that um, sort of got its second wind after the dynasty. Yeah, because, I mean, I was too young for the first ones there, all those first ones, first cups. Yeah. Uh, And then, yeah, I I don't really remember them being, I was too young even to kind of remember them being terrible. I think you just like the Oilers when you're like, if you're six or seven, like you kind of know, you don't really know. You just like them. (laughs) Uh, But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Curtis Joseph, Doug Waite, Todd Marchant, Mike Greer kid. That's my yeah. first era that I can kind of remember that Todd Marchant goal and is it 97 coming down mm-hmm. on in overtime there? Like that's on Andy Moe. That's yeah. the first ones I can remember. Well, and it was always was, the Dallas Stars, or it seemed like it yeah. was. <laughs> they play I mean, they played the stars six out of seven years in the playoffs. So see, and that's that's how you build a rivalry, right? Yeah. But uh Unfortunately, that was the only time Edmonton ever got the better of the stars in the playoffs, but at least they made it a memorable one. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to believe, but yeah, yeah. They always pushed then, You know what? Despite Dallas usually being first or second in the West and Edmonton routinely being seventh or eighth, they always gave them a good fight in the playoffs. And that was, you know, with a team with substantially lower payroll and, and star power. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, yeah, was, and the payroll, yeah, you're right, payroll, because it wasn't a salary cap area yet either. So yeah. it was like, what's your ownership able or willing to spend? It kind of sucked that way. Exactly. And I mean, that was the first year I started following hockey, too. And uh, it, it's funny, being from uh, a city that doesn't have an NHL team, um, I didn't just get like born into being an Oilers fan. I mean, my dad was uh, an Oilers fan and a Red Wings fan. So in the late 90s, the Red Wings were having their run. And, you know, I was watching them a bit, but I wasn't really a fan of that team. Um, It wasn't until the late 90s that I I really started to become an Oilers fan because he was telling me all these stories about Gretzky. And then, you know, I started to learn more about that. the dynasty teams they had in the eighties. Cause I didn't really know Gretzky as an oiler. I knew him as a King and as a Ranger for the most part. Yeah, I hadn't me. really, that, that was how I was like introduced to Wayne Gretzky. I didn't have this, um, this knowledge of, of all his best years in Edmonton. And then once I started to find that out, that sort of turned me into an Oilers fan, uh, in around 99. Yeah. Like me and you are basically the same era, right? Gretzky yeah. was a King and a, ranger kind of and like a blue barely or whatever for a a half a season yeah (laughs) i mean me and you were kind of the like those guys i named off and like schmitty and smitty and jason smith and alish hemsky and that era the early 2000s all those garen and then obviously 2006 that was oh yeah i mean i mean that's that's all we had to cling to until we got that lottery from the gods pick (laughs) I mean, <laughs> changed a, our fortunes around, but that's still the had, most fun I've ever had watching hockey. And I, I hope we really get to duplicate that 2006 run and, and this time cap it off the right way. Oh, I know. I think I was 18 or 19 during that. So we had, we had a lot of fun watching all those games and down on white Ave, not getting into too much trouble, but 
That's good. Did you ever make it to one of the games during the 2006 playoff run? No, no, I, I never really, I know. I mean, I couldn't pay what the prices were. I, I can mean, imagine. Never had, I never had any hookups or any season tickets or anything to get them at, even at face value. So it was yeah. kind of out. I don't really try even, I don't think. I don't blame you. I mean, I was 17 at the time and um, I went to my first NHL game earlier that season, but um didn't even have a, a car yet at that time or or the money to see a game. So coming out to a, a playoff game would have been impossible. And I was really hoping to in 2017, but I was living in Toronto for grad school at the time. And then I, I had my fingers crossed that I was going to get to see them in the playoffs the past two years, but obviously the pandemic wiped that out. But this year I will go to an Oilers playoff game for the first <laughs> time. And that's that it's been a long time coming that it took this many years, but I'm, I'm glad that I'll still get the chance eventually. <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to go, but I, I just, I can't for me. I can't spend, I can't spend, I can't justify spending that. Oh, I know. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I haven't got... seen what the prices are going to be yet, but uh, I can imagine <laughs> they won't be super cheap. <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> but um, no, that's cool. I, 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 We kind of just briefly touched on that. All the guys that we grew up watching in the late 90s, early 2000s with um, you and I being Oilers fans from sort of the same era. But who were one or two of your favorite players as a kid? Uh, well, on the Oilers, I, I kind of told you, like I was a goalie when I was in like whatever that would be, Adam or even first year Wee. So right. I did like Curtis Joseph. Uh, it's funny. One of my favorite players I can remember having a poster on my door was uh, Felix Potvin. Okay, cat. and he was in Toronto. Not that I ever like liked the Leafs or anything, but I don't know why I had that poster. I liked that guy as a goalie. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, that's one that I had a Tommy to Sallow poster. <laughs> he was good. Yeah, yeah. He, you know what for. For a, a couple of years there in the early 2000s, he was arguably a top 10 goalie in the league. That's what people, I've seen that going around lately. Uh, the, people always say that one goal just broke him somehow. Yeah. Was that the Olympics or what was that? Yeah, that was in the, yeah. that was in the quarter finals of the, of the 2002 winter Olympics where Sweden was playing Belarus and you just expected a dominant team like Sweden to walk all over them. And unfortunately, Belarus pulled off this upset for the ages. And that was the the goal that did them in the slap shot from outside of the zone that hit Tommy Sallow in the face and rolled down his back into the net. And it just seemed like he never fully recovered after that. Which is amazing that one goal could do that to a guy. But I guess that's when they talk about how you have to be, you have to have mental toughness and mental coaches yeah. and everything uh, on your teams these days. Like that's why, cause I guess you just could never shake it or maybe not. Maybe that's just yeah. what everyone thinks. Maybe there's something else or maybe he just lost it. Who knows? Right. I know. But I mean, still, uh, I mean, you got to respect what the guy did in Edmonton. I mean, he had tough shoes to fill. He was coming in as the replacement for Curtis Joseph. And although Tommy Sallow never won a playoff series in Edmonton, he did give them some pretty stellar regular seasons. Well, and now we're, we've never had a goalie. Like we had Rollison for the one season, half a season in playoffs, which is awesome. Yeah. But like we've never really had a bona fide number one, have we? Really? 
Uh, you mean like in the last 20 years or so? Like since then? Yeah. Well, I mean, through the decade of darkness, it's hard to say that anybody <laughs> really was. I I would say that Cam Talbot um, in 2016-17 at least was a, yeah. a, a legitimate number one goalie for the team. And he, I mean, he set the Oilers franchise record for wins in a season that year. So uh, for a brief moment in time, Cam Talbot was probably the the best we've had since Rolison, I would say. Yeah, it's too bad. We need to find our our guy that's your number one for years. Plural. Well, maybe we have, and I think we'll, we'll talk <laughs> about that a little later on in the show, too. Um, do you remember your first Oilers game at Northlands Coliseum? I remember, I'll tell you the funny, uh, there's only one thing I remember. I remember it was against the Jets, and I, I remember climbing the stairs and how long and how far up it went we must have been i think we were at the roof whatever row that was 50 51 i remember going with my dad and my grandma i can't believe she climbed all those stairs like looking at looking back at it now like how far up that was uh i don't remember the score i don't remember who won i don't remember any anything else that's the only thing i remember is how high up we had to go well, the, the Jets left uh, town in 96, so it was at least pre-96 then. So there you go. But uh, I was a little bit older. My, I, was, I was 17 when I saw my first game. I, I actually remember the date. It was April 1st, 2006, and unfortunately, they lost to the Calgary Flames uh, 4-1. to I, Sean Horkoff had the only goal, but I did get to see George LaRock beat Chris Simon in a fight. So uh, that was probably the highlight of the night. I mean, I think I went to the most of my games during the worst periods of like the decade of darkness, like after 2006. Oh, okay. Because I would buy tickets on StubHub and stuff back then. Me too. You'd buy tickets on StubHub and they'd like physically mail you the ticket like in an envelope. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> uh, so I went to a lot Shows of... Shows how old school we are. That was the majority of my Oilers games because they were on good deal, good price. I could go... Yeah. You know, get a beer, whatever, and a hot dog and watch them lose 8-2 to Buffalo or whatever it was. But <laughs> yeah, walk, a couple, were... walk a couple kilometers from Northlands across the bridge. Back yeah, in those was, days uh, in January. It was pretty rough. I always stayed at the hotel right across the street at the Coliseum Inn oh, uh, when, I, when I came to town. So I was only a quick quick walk and never had to like worry about parking at the oh, and how was that hotel inside there <laughs> you know what i <laughs> i i've stayed there as recently as um uh 2020 so it's okay uh, uh the just my most recent trip uh to edmonton a couple weeks ago was the first time i'd stayed at a different hotel in several years now uh, I had I haven't stayed at North, um, the Coliseum exclusively, but it it was the hotel that I stayed at most often when the Oilers were still playing at Rexall because it was well, so I mean, close. But I mean, it was it's a dirt cheap hotel, but I mean, it's it's not the Ritz Carlton or anything. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just a place to sleep after the game, after you're done yeah. going out or whatever. I guess right. You're not spending well, too much time there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I remember um, it was my uh, my 31st birthday in January 2020. Uh, I came out and they beat the Predators four to two that night, and I so that was a, that was a highlight. But my car didn't start the next day when I was supposed to drive home to Saskatoon. So 
Uh, I had a guy come out to try and get my car started. He was unable to do it. So I'm pretty much just stranded at the Coliseum. And I had to stay there for four nights until until uh, my dad was able to drive out from Saskatoon to Edmonton to, uh, to get my car going and, and get me home. So I think that was probably the longest that uh, anyone's ever had to extend their stay at that hotel. <laughs> well, except for maybe some of the regulars. Yeah, because <laughs> that's uh, uh, I don't know. And with no car and being right, and I know exactly where the, what neighborhood that is. Like it, I don't know where you would be going. You don't want to well, walk too far away. Yeah, you, you, you take it like I've I've never lived in Edmonton, so I I don't know that area very well. But I remember when I was uh, tweeting a, about that that I was kind of stuck there. Some people were commenting that it wasn't the best area in town. No, so I, definitely not. <laughs> So like I better just I, like I need to eat, so I have to go across the street to the Seven Eleven at least to to get food because I can't I can't drive anywhere to go go pick up uh, takeout food or anything even. Yeah. So, and it was but, before uh, the days where you could order anything and everything you want. Yeah, like delivery. Then, I mean, right. And then a month later, the pandemic hit, and I haven't been back since. But anyway, <laughs> we'll we'll move on from that. Um, I just want to ask, what's your favorite memory of watching the Oilers, either on TV or in person? Well, I mean, we kind of talked about all the memories of 2006. There's so many games mm-hmm. like the just the city was just buzzing, man. Like people were driving around every corner, not even near the rink, like down way south where I used to live. Uh, like people just stand on the corner with signs and pom poms and people honking like everywhere you go. People, everyone's listening to the game in their car or watching it somewhere or whatever. Uh, that was pretty cool. That whole that whole time, I can't believe we missed it by one game. Like, geez. Uh, yeah. But uh, and but more recently, uh, as a dad, I actually got I took my son uh, in January 2020. So right before, and I'm really glad we got to go before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to take him to his first game in at his first game ever. Uh, and it was actually might've been my first time at Rogers to see an Oilers game. I'd gone to a few oil Kings, I think, but nice. Uh, we got to go and we went early and we went down by the glass for warmups. And then we went up and got a popcorn and a cotton candy man, seven and six years old at the time. He doesn't matter if it's Oilers or yeah, he doesn't know, know the senior, difference. Senior triple A and Stony Plain, as long as there's cotton candy and popcorn, like yeah. it's all good. And they they pumped the coyote coyotes that game. So he got to see lots of goals and it was great. It was a good that's a good memory for me. And I'm really glad we got to do it before uh, there was no fans for however long. And even yeah. now, lots of people might not want to go to a game yet. So Well, I mean, the game I went to uh against the Predators earlier this month. Um, the announced attendance, I think, was 14,400. So you're looking at over 4,000 empty seats in there. Yeah. Well, and, you, and they, I don't know, like on TV, you can't really tell. Uh, I mean, I can't really tell. I mean, you see some a little couple empty seats that maybe they're more in the upper part that they don't see on TV. I think that's TV, where but... there were a lot. Like in in the row that I was sitting in, there was maybe only four or five people out of the 12 seats in the row. So it's, there's definitely some, some tickets that they were probably having a hard time selling up there. And hopefully that was just for 
uh, a, a Tuesday night game or something like that. Like, I, I figure on a hockey night in Canada, Saturday night game, that's going to get sold out. Like when you when I watched that game against the Blackhawks on Saturday, I didn't see many empty seats. And when when Calgary came to town and the Oilers played them, I would imagine that games like that are still sold out, even if there's some people who don't want to come out to games yet. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's enough people that are feeling comfortable enough to go. Uh, one thing for me, though, it, it's price, man. Like, yeah, I got to go with my son because someone I work with, they know a person that has seasons tickets and they were, you know, they try to sell them, but it was like getting down to like a couple of days before. And so he just sold them to me for like, like cheap, like cheap air quotes, like whatever it was mm-hmm. face value or even a little under. And so I got a good deal. And so I, I took my boy and we got to have a few snacks and watch the game. But it's, I mean, I can't do it. I can't do it more than once a year or twice, maybe like it's, they're pricing themselves out of a lot of people too. Yeah. It's becoming definitely a luxury that, you know, only people with some money can afford to go do. And I mean, I try to come out to three or four games a year, but you know, even sitting in the the upper bowl, you're still looking at about 120 a ticket. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to do and eat or drink anything, it's like right astronomical. That's, you almost have like <laughs> I I just go out for dinner before I come. To yeah, a game. that you're you're still going to pay less at a restaurant than you would uh, uh, if you tried to have anything to eat or drink at there. Like even a, a bottle of water, a little five hundred milliliter bottle of water, I think is five dollars. So I know. Yeah, exactly. No, I can I can hear you on that. Well, anyway, man, that's awesome to hear more about uh, your fandom. And well, let's transition into some Oilers-related topics now. Um, I, I think a good place to start is with Leon Dreisaitl, the Oilers' leading scorer this year. He's leading the team currently in goals and points, and he's also the top scorer in the NHL right now, even ahead of Connor McDavid. And I, I think the most impressive stat is that he has 18 goals in 17 games. Now, is he going to continue to produce at over a goal per game for the rest of the season? That's probably unlikely, but he's just put himself in such a good position that it it almost seems like a certainty that he's going to be in the the conversation for at least 50 goals again and and could try to win a Rocket Richard trophy. Um, Just first off, what can you say about the season Dreisaitl's had so far? Oh, I mean, it's been amazing. I'm so happy we got that guy. To compliment McDavid, I feel like every team, when you go back, like Pittsburgh had Crosby, Malkin, they always have that second guy. And right now, the second guy's putting up just as many points as the, the top guy. Um, but yeah, he's he can do it all. He doesn't do it with the flash. Like McDavid scores those goals going through four guys. But I mean, he just quietly goes about doing his business he's always in the right spot never misses he's you know i always thought the oilers never had that guy that could just he gets the pass and he just snipes it and he doesn't miss very often we had some guys but they always had to they couldn't do that one timer they they just missed more often than they hit it and he's a he's a sniper so it's really awesome to have him for sure well, he's probably got the best one-timer by an Oilers forward since Yari Curry. And, you know, Wayne always liked to set him up for that back in the 80s. So it's it's been a long time coming. And now McDavid is sort of in that Gretzky-type role. Although they're not, you know, exactly the same type of player. You know, they're 
they dominate the game in a, a similar fashion. And, and Dreisaitl might have some elements of Yari Curry, might have some of Marc Messier, but it, you're right. It, it definitely is a, a huge weapon to have a, a one-timer like that from the from basically all angles, too. I mean, he scores from some really sharp <laughs> angles in the offensive zone. Yeah, he scored like from behind the goal line. He did against from Ottawa last year. <laughs> No, it's it's uh, unbelievable the knack that he has for that, and I I just feel like he is still one of the most underappreciated players in the NHL, and probably part of that is that he is McDavid's teammate. But you just look what the guy's done. I mean, in 2018-19, 50 goals and 105 points, he's fourth in the league in scoring. The year after, he wins the Art Ross Trophy, the Hart Trophy, the Ted Lindsay Award. Uh, last year, he's second in the league in scoring, but had the um, I think the highest points per game average of his career. And this year he's back leading the league in points again. And I just feel like outside of Edmonton, I don't know if even though he is starting to get recognized more, I don't think that they still ap- appreciate how great of a player dry is. No, I think so too. Outside this market, a lot of guys don't know or don't watch enough games or stay up late enough to watch all those guys out East. And there's They're been all this their, their Eastern train over there, but I mean, they got good players all around the league. I, I, people are always arguing about Matthews and Drysaddle. I think Drysaddle to date has shown more. He's put up more points. Well, Matthews uh, has never outscored him in a season. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think he's really shown. Matthews has shown that he's better than him. I wouldn't say that especially with all the, like you just listed off how he did in the last couple of years, dry cycle. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he can do 50 and 50. That's pretty hard. I don't know if anybody could do that these days. I mean, the last one, the last player to do it was Brett Hall in 1991, 92. So 30 years ago, I mean, even, even Alex Ovechkin, who some people consider the greatest goal scorer of all time has never been able to hit 50 goals in 50 games. So if dry cycle, can get there that's a huge uh that's a huge uh tip of the cap to him and i think playing with Connor mcdavid will certainly help him get there i mean i don't think dry is a product of mcdavid and anyone who watches dry and knows that you know he's able to still dominate when he's away from mcdavid uh there's no doubt that when those two get together on the power play they're going to take their game to even another level and it, the the results show if you look at their stats I think so. He can drive his own line, if he, like when, oh, absolutely. When, he, when he has to. So, I prefer to have them separated at even strength. Anyway, I mean, they're still able to rack up a ton of points on the power play. Uh, Dave Tippett usually puts them together for a shift after a penalty kill, and you know, it's a nice weapon to have when the team is down a goal or two late in the game, and you want to. Th- load up that top line to try and get your team back in it. That's an instance where I'm okay with McDavid and Dreisaitl playing together. But I think for this team to get to where they want to go in the playoffs, you need to have those two dominant players running their own lines. And and uh, when they have played a part, I think the, the overall results are better for the team. I totally agree with you. <laughs> I think it, I think it's, Definitely not ideal to always have to run them together. You yeah. definitely want to try to build the two lines uh, with them both being centers, but you need enough guys around to be able to do that, which I think they have improved greatly on their forwards this year. 
So do you believe Dreisaitl's the second best player in the league right now? Oh, right now? I, I think so. I mean, look at him. He's leading the league in scoring. I, I don't know about I don't know about his his advanced numbers and how he does defensively mm-hmm. and all that. I don't I don't does know that, about that. I can't comment on that, but but if, I don't even know if, if a that player would... isn't great defensively, does that take away from what they do offensively? I mean, Wayne Gretzky was was not known as an exceptional defensive player, but no, I, that, it doesn't take me, away that from never. Their, I don't think it takes away from their, their them offensively. I just think it's something that other detractors might point to, right? To try to say he's not second best, they'd say this guy. Puts up maybe not quite as many points, but he's not on the ice for as many goals against or whatever. Like it's just yeah. another thing people might use. But and there's other I great players around the league. Like Nathan McKinnon is definitely in the conversation for second best. Matthews, I know he led the league in goals last year. I, I still don't think that he's top three or anything like that. Uh, uh, Ovechkin is, you know, always continued to be a dominant goal scorer and he's even picked up his point production this year Crosby is probably still close to top five you got Nikita Kucherov and Artemi Panera there are some big stars around the league but I just think if you look at a a sample size of the last five years uh, Dreisaitl probably is the second best player he's certainly the second most dominant offensive player it's just it still goes back to what I kind of mentioned before he there's a a bit of a McDavid attachment there. And I think that some people see uh, how can, how can dry be the second best player in the league when he, when he plays with McDavid? Yeah. Well, it's the same kind of thing of people saying like, how can McDavid not be the MVP of your team every year mm-hmm. <laughs> at the league? However, every year? Like you can't give if it anyone to watch that team. Yeah. But I mean, if you watch the 2019, 20 season, the year after Connor came back from his injury, Dreisaitl deserved to win the MVP that year. He he was the Oilers' best player in 2019-20. Oh, I agree. I think he's great. I'm very happy yep. that we drafted him. Whoever drafted him, good job. Was that Mac T or who was that? Uh, who who drafted Dreisaitl or, or McDavid? Yeah. Dreisaitl. Uh, oh, Dreisaitl was McTavish. Uh, McDavid was Peter Shirelli. <laughs> yeah, good job, Charlie. I'm picking McDavid. I'm glad you did that one. <laughs> probably his probably his best move as a, as Oilers GM. I, although you know what, I, as much as as much of a hard time as Shirelli gets, I I do have to give him some credit for uh, some of the draft picks he made. He did he did actually make some pretty good picks. So um, at least he he didn't uh, mess up completely everything that he touched uh, while he was <laughs> while he was working here. Um, and let's let's take the chance to move on to McDavid now. Um, and I'm glad that I have you on because this is a real hot topic not just in oil country, but around the hockey world. And I'm glad to talk to a hockey ref about this because this topic isn't going to go away. It, it's been discussed for years why Connor McDavid doesn't draw more penalties. And it came to light, especially during the, the playoffs last spring, where he was routinely mugged night after night against the Winnipeg Jets. And he couldn't draw a single call. He, it's, he actually hasn't drawn a penalty in eight consecutive playoff games going back to 2020. Um, last, in fact, last game against the Jets, he, or sorry, not against the Jets, the Blackhawks, he drew three penalties in that game. And that was the first time since 2017 where he had drawn uh, at, at least three penalties in a game. I just want to ask you, why doesn't McDavid draw more penalties in your opinion? 
Well, I mean, I think it's been said by a lot of people. It's, uh, I think they're, they're definitely, they're definitely under the impression or the referees are that they really can't call everything against the guy because there'd be too many power plays, too many calls for one team. And I mean, I know people hate that and I don't really like it either, but until I always, I took it back to last year after the playoffs, like you mentioned, after the playoffs were done, you know, they had their GM meetings and they have their owners meetings and they discussed officiating at those meetings. And I mean, I don't know what was said in the meetings, but all that came out of it was what they didn't really argue. Like they kind of said they are okay with how the game is refed uh, in the playoffs and that the, what they wanted to look at was those cross-checking. They put out that cross-checking. Which lasted for about gonna, two weeks. Which I was just going to say, yeah. say, I don't think that's even in effect right now. The cross-checking crackdown. Um, so, I mean, I think it has to come from 32 other team owners and GMs. Because, like, what's going to change it? If yeah. they're all okay with how it is officiated i mean fans can scream it is gaining momentum i think you said eric like i i think we're seeing of more people outside of the local market uh talking about it now like i saw friedman talking yeah, about it that and was other people one. so i Elliot mean it friedman is wrote reaching. that article on it and I, i'm glad that he mentioned it because i think his voice does carry a lot of weight in the hockey world and to have him call it out and say that this is ridiculous that mcdavid isn't drawing more calls I don't know if that's going to have an immediate change to how things go for him, but I'm glad that it's at least being acknowledged that mistakes are being made and that they have to try to correct this. Yeah, it is tough. Like it is tough refing. I'll take it back to, uh, I was refing in Bantam AAA the year. It was the Tyler Benson, Sam Steele year. Uh, and so they were dominant, especially Benson was dominant that year for Southside athletic club. And so when you ref those games, you just, you almost had to, you had to, like, the guy, the defenseman and stuff, they earned their calls. You had to make sure you caught the, the very egregious ones, which, going back to McDavid, I think he doesn't even get the egregious ones called for himself. Most of the time, no. <laughs> so I mean, what, coming what I'm into talking what... about Benson was, you know, you try to catch the, the big hooks and the the bad, bad ones, but he, I mean, he had to fight through, he fought through a lot of little taps and I don't know, slash touches and slashes and yeah. hooks and stuff. And, and it, it just goes back to like, you're trying to not completely squeeze the game as a ref. It's a very fine line to dance and it's tough to do when there's one guy or two guys that are like way better than all the rest. And that's a case of a lot of times when McDavid and Dreisaitl are out there playing against third and fourth liners and they're allowed to do whatever they want to them without any repercussions because they know that the refs aren't going to call anything. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to like a lot of people you see saying like, what do you want your product to be? You want to dumb down the game to let the guys who aren't as good hold on to and, and stifle exactly your best players. And we're not just talking about Connor and Leon. 
No. All the it's players. not just a McDavid problem. It's a star player problem around the league. McDavid might be the poster boy for it because he's the best player. And you would assume that the guy who has the puck more than anyone else and is the most skilled and most fastest player in, in the game is is the guy who would draw the most penalties, but it's not the case. I mean, yes, <laughs> he think? did he he did draw three penalties against Chicago, but coming into that game, I believe he had drawn five penalties in the 16 previous games. So he's drawing about one call every three games on average prior to their most previous game. Well, and you got to think too, he's the guy that's on the ice the most. Yeah. And probably has like top possession numbers with the puck. Yet he's still zone entries. Like you'd think, okay, maybe he might not be the top drawer of penalties just because the refs, you know, they can't call everything, blah, blah, blah. But he's got to be in the top. And, and he's nowhere close. I think they said he was like, like he was fifty. This season, I think he's fifty seventh. But over the past few years, <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Per per sixty, it, it's it was something I can't remember. Ridiculous, like two hundred and sixtieth in the league, or uh, I don't know. I just feel like yes, the refs say that they would have to call penalties basically every shift or every other shift if they actually called everything that happens to Connor, but. That, is that his problem? Tell the league no. to get to tell the league to get better then, or stop cheating. You know, there's perfect examples. He's in Boston. Um, uh, Patrice Bergeron put, uh, sticks a stick between his his feet, trips him, no call. Uh, in St. Louis, McDavid's uh, trying to get a chance on net. He gets his stick whacked out of his hands and legs chopped down. No call. And, and it's right in front of the ref. They can't even say that they missed it. They're just outright yeah. ignoring it. And it, it's even worse in the playoffs. And like you kind of mentioned before, they should the league should want to showcase its skill. They're more worried about um, competitive balance around the league than they are about allowing their superstars to thrive. And you, and when you look at the NFL and the NBA, they protect their superstars and they want to let the best players uh, be able to use their abilities and 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 run up the score. And and in hockey, it's not like that. They they don't seem to have the same mentality of letting the best players be the best players night after night. They. It, they want to limit how much offense they're able to create. And it's it's a real shame that the NHL does this because we just said it's not just a McDavid problem. They could boost scoring around the league by having more power plays. And for some reason, they just don't want to do that. Yeah, well, like you said, you said it. Uh, the word you used was it's a mentality of, of the NHL and of hockey in general. Like I was saying to you, like I, even I, I will. I officiate a six nothing game differently than yeah. a three two game in the yeah. third period, and then if it's playoffs or whatever, like it's just. But that's the thing. Why does know, the, just why does the game? Us. Why does the game have to change going from regular season to playoffs? I mean, oh, I know. Should yeah, I know? Should the rule book? I mean, you have this rule book for a reason. Should the rule book not be the same for game one of the regular season to game seven of the Stanley Cup final? Well, it should in a perfect world, <laughs> yes, I know. But it, I know. I mean, and if you check the rule book, it doesn't say, you know, call penalties subjectively based on <laughs> the, the situation of the game or the skill level of the, the player the infraction was committed against. You know, tripping, hold, hooking, holding, interference, they happen to McDavid night after night. And 
you know, he, he barely draws any calls when he, he should be realistically probably drawing at least five penalties a game. And we're never, we're never going to see that, but wouldn't you think that if, if they actually did call it the way it should be, the Oilers would get, you know, constant power plays. Well, they would. And you know what though? It can be done, Eric, because coming out of that one lockout year, yeah, they had the crackdown on, they did in 0506 and interference. The obstruction called, was called a lot more. They called a crap load of penalties in the first while. And I I think it did. The players eventually did learn and change. And they didn't have to call as many later on. And I don't think they were just letting them go later on. I think it actually did change, but it didn't last. And I think there were like six or seven hundred point scorers that year. And, you know scoring was at the highest it had been since the early 90s and all of a sudden the nhl said no enough of that you know we we have to we have to crack down again and, and not uh not uh, call every little thing but it just well yeah I, I feel like the nhl wants to keep this mentality of it is a tough league you have to you have to fight through a lot of that and it sort of leads me into what i wanted to talk about next the whole uh, John Tortorella thing telling McDavid he needs to shut up about it. Uh, what did what did you think about uh, Tortorella coming out on ESPN and saying that uh, you're not just going to score a, a ton of goals to win in the playoffs? You're you're going to have to learn how to play on the other side of the puck, and you need to shut up about not getting calls. <laughs> well, I kind of thought it was funny coming from him telling someone to shut up because he's yeah. one of the guys you see on TV and yelling and trying to fight teams in the locker room in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, but he's a, uh he's a clown i mean it's an that's the that's the mentality of the owners and the gms and the league itself and yes you do need you do need to play differently in the playoffs like i'd be curious to know how many president's trophy winner teams first place overall go on to actually win because right. you need two different teams it's very that's why it's so hard, I think, to win a Stanley Cup and build a team. You can build a team for success in the regular season. Yeah. And then the playoffs, it flips to being like a different game. And if you don't have certain oh, it's way more types tight of players. Checking. I think, I think they, the refs do still call the same amount of penalties in the playoffs as the regular season. It's just that there's way more infractions happening as well. Yeah, I've, I've heard that that someone looked into those stats and like the amount of power plays per game is kind of comparable, but there's just but, so many other things let go. Yeah. That, that don't get called. Well, and there was always a, like, well, you can't call that in the playoffs. That's so chintzy or whatever. Like that's the mentality, right? Yeah. And, and I remember during the playoffs last year, there were people like Dom Lashishin, who's a, a big analytics guy in, um, this uh, this research analyst named Rachel Dory, who went back and watched all of McDavid's shifts and counted the infractions against him, and I think she ca- she said she put out on Twitter that she uh, counted more than thirty penalties on Connor in the four games that they played against the Jets. So we're talking about you know an average of about eight penalties a night, and he didn't draw one. So it it really just shows that it that the league isn't going to call that kind of stuff. I mean, he was getting tackled on the, on the ice basically. Yeah. And, and they, they wouldn't call it. So if, if they're not going to call that, what are they going to call it? And it's, it's a real shame that the best player in the world, the most skilled hockey player, maybe we've ever seen 
has to adjust his game. Why should the best player in the league have to adjust his game for the playoffs, but a third or fourth liner playing on the Jets doesn't have to change anything? In fact, he can get away with a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's like ridiculous. I was telling you, like, it's hard. It's hard because, like, I was saying, like, I try to catch the the worst ones against the top player in that in that year where it was Benson and Steele. So you're talking about obvious trips when he has the puck on like a side breakaway or whatever, right. like those kind of ones. You don't you're not going to miss those. No, it's the little ones, maybe the little taps or he's when he tries to go through. I mean, like when you try to go through three or four guys, like you can't expect them all to just move out of the way and let you go through. And he's successfully uh, so, done it. So you're going to feel, you're going to feel some smacks on your shin pads or maybe on your, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to go through some stuff. And those are the ones that you might not call, but yeah. the ones where he gets grabbed and spun around and falls down. And, I mean, and, uh, people say, oh, he goes down so easy. Blah, 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 blah. No, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think he's going so fast that when you, interrupt his direction by yeah. tripping or hooking or getting in his way or grabbing him that he he does go down because he's moving so fast uh, yeah i mean when a guy's skating 41 kilometers an hour at you <laughs> and while stick handling the puck so fast and making these moves that you can't keep up with i mean oh, yeah no. you worry you just worry about him you know crashing into the boards on uh, getting tripped by one of these guys but you uh you did mention earlier the the two uh, incredible goals he scored earlier this year, and I, I want to talk about those two now. Um, so obviously, in the in the incredible comeback six five win in overtime against the the New York Rangers uh, in early November, McDavid scored quite possibly the best goal of his NHL career, where he went one on four, deked through the whole team with three minutes left in the game to tie it and send it to overtime. And then uh, just uh, less than a week ago, he scored a similar goal, this time going one on three, 28 seconds after the Jets took the lead late in the game to tie it again. Um, just two unbelievable goals. Both are arguably top five goals that he's scored in the league so far. I just want to ask you, what goal do you think was better? And I mean, what can you say about the guy's ability to just do this seemingly at will? I mean, it's just unreal. Like, <laughs> I said, no, I watched, I watched the game. I'm sitting on my couch, and he does both of those, whichever one you want to look at. And I just sit there and go, like, that's just, like, what? Like, <laughs> how? Like, that's just amazing. Like, I don't understand. Like, he's just that much better than everyone else. Like, it's ridiculous. And look what happens when the Jets or whoever have to defend without... Yeah cheating i mean the guy goes through he makes one guy uh look the other way and fall over and go around two guys and deeks out a was it vesna last year uh he won, i think he won two it two years in 2018 ago 2018 or 2019 but he was the runner-up uh yeah, yeah. he was runner-up so, I mean, those year. two goals i i don't know i like i think the rangers won because he did it from like no build-up speed he was at the blue line he had to wait for his teammates to clear the zone 
Yeah. He kind of was working his way sideways, like across the blue line parallel. And I mean, he's the only guy I think in the league that looks up and sees three or four guys and none of his teammates and says, I'm just going to go and try to score and then pulls it off. Uh, yeah, so I, mean, I like the Rangers one, especially the Rangers one was the big comeback from down four one. I mean, the Jets one too, though, that's a big rivalry game to try to prove they can beat them and better goal. It just got scored on. So, I mean, that one was pretty good too, but I, I go with the Rangers one. I think. Yeah. I agree. I mean that 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 these are both two goals that are going to end up on his career highlight tape when it's all said and done. And I think the incredible thing about Connor is that as good as those two goals are, I wouldn't put it past him that he's going to score a better one in his career yet. Oh yeah. I mean like, he might well, even I score mean, 5 that are better than that Rangers goal. He's had ones prior to this that are like similar, right? Like he had the Columbus yeah. one and other ones. So, I mean, it's not, that's the thing too. It's just like, this happens not nightly, but it happens a lot. Yeah. It's just, no, it's, like, I'm so happy. It's so, we're so like lucky. Like we got that pick and then we get to watch him every night, every game. He, he truly is the, the reward that Oilers fans deserved after going through the decade of darkness. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. If someone, if I could go back to 2007 when everything kind of came crashing down after the Ryan Smith trade, and someone told me, "Listen, the next ten years are going to be really rough. The team is going to lose. <laughs> the, the team is going to lose far more often than they win. But at the end of this, you're going to get arguably one of the five best players to ever play the game." I would say, you know what? Sign me up for that because it's <laughs> it's it's worth all that pain and suffering. If Connor McDavid is the prize at the end, and uh, I mean, this is his seventh year. It's hard to believe it's already his seventh year in Edmonton, and yeah. uh, the, the team is finally on the right track. And I think they're getting closer and closer to being a Stanley Cup contender. Obviously, we talked about their third in the league right now, and they just have to keep this up and and keep building towards uh, that ultimate goal. I just, uh, I just pray he's our Ovechkin, but it doesn't yeah. take as long. Yeah, I mean, and it, <laughs> it, it, it can. Like, it, it took, uh, it took Steve Eiserman fourteen years. I think it took Ovechkin yeah. thirteen years. It, it doesn't happen overnight for everybody. I think you, you see someone like uh, Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane get the cup in their third year. Crosby and Malkin get the cup in their fourth year, and you just sort of expect like, okay, well that's when superstars are supposed to win. They're supposed basically right out of their entry level deals. They're supposed to be Stanley cup contenders. But the issue is, is that the Oilers in 2017 or 2018 didn't have a prime Duncan Keith or Brent Seabrook on the back end. You know, they, they didn't have a, a Chris Letang or the supporting cast that they had in Pittsburgh as well. So, the Oilers were basically starting from scratch and they've had to build this team up. And, and yes, there, there are some parts that were there before McDavid got there, like Darnell Nurse and, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins and players like, like this who are top contributors. Uh, Jesse Pugliarvi is developing into uh, an impact player, but um, they just, they are, they've slowly had to start putting this team together piece by piece. And I think Ken Holland in his two and a half years on the job has, has done pretty well. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I like how I like what he did with the forwards. I don't know about the defense, especially now with these injuries. But uh, like you said, we didn't get the prime Duncan Keith. We got the yeah. 
the five six years later at full. He, uh, well, that's a that's a conversation for another yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> you know what though? I think he clip. played. I think he played his best game as an Oiler against his old team on Saturday night, and maybe he was extra motivated. He also had to pick up a lot of minutes for Nurse, who was out. And I, I think that's a good t- chance for us to transition over to that. We got two topics left before we call it a night here. Uh, Darnell Nurse out for two to three weeks with a cracked finger. Uh, how do you think that this defensive core is going to get the job done without him uh, for the next, say, six to ten games? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that. You don't, you definitely didn't go into the season saying, oh, well, you know, hopefully or later in the season, we'll be able to elevate the key CC pairing up in the lineup. You yeah. were hoping to even maybe keep them there or down for minutes. Uh, I mean, Broberg had one game, so it's hard to say. He, he looked, played pretty solid. He played pretty game. good from what I, I read or seen. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty big loss, and especially nurse uh, I, I just hope he heals fine and it, it it ends up being two to three weeks like they say the one thing i'll say about the oilers though i think they might have the firepower to maybe outscore their problems a little yeah. bit if it's only two to three weeks right true and, and you know what just to touch on broberg for a second i really didn't notice him too much in that game other than a couple shifts and i think for a 20 year old kid playing his first nhl game if you didn't notice him much that probably means that he didn't make too many mistakes yeah, so i no, think that's exactly. a, that's a pretty good sign um aside from that like yeah eventually you want him to become that solid second pairing left shot defenseman behind nurse He's not going to be that overnight, but it takes defensemen a little longer to develop than forwards. You know, we'll we'll see where Broberg is five years down the line. I mean, you look at Oscar Kleffbaum when he was at his best in 2016-17. That was coming up on six years after he was drafted. We're only two years in for Broberg, so I'm I'm interested to see what he's going to be like in his mid twenties. It's just a a matter of getting there. And if he does have to go back to the AHL when Nurse is healthy, that's fine too, because I figured he'd spend at least 30 to 40 games there before he got a call up anyway. And well, I, uh, think a, I think a lot of people were kind of surprised to see him get called up. That, that was before the Nurse news came out. Yeah. They thought, they thought uh, it was cuckoo, the cuckoo. cuckoo went down and people were kind of thinking that Broberg would have just stayed there all year. They would have called up Legacy. But, uh, but Broberg is their knew. best defenseman. He, he has absolutely been the best defenseman for Bakersfield so far this year. He, he hasn't scored a goal yet, but he had 10 assists in 13 games, which ranks him second among rookie defensemen in that category. So to have a, a guy who's making his AHL debut and, and putting up close to a point per game, that's pretty impressive. So I think that he would have got a call up eventually, but I just I didn't see it before, say, the Olympic break. Well, I mean, I guess injuries will, injuries will do that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of get desperate when and, you go with I what mean, you who, have. And who would have thought that Cody Cece would be like our most uh, relied on veteran de- defensive presence back there <laughs> before the season. But that's that's who we're going to be relying on in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Cody Cece is going to have to play a, a big part. And um, it, it's going to be, I think this team is going to have to get it done by committee. They don't have one guy who can take on nurses 26 to 30 minutes a night, uh, game after game. But if everyone's minutes are elevated and they're kind of evened out and you, and you have to shelter guys too, right? Like give, give players like Broberg as many offensive zone starts as you can. 
and don't put him in a situation where he's going to have to be defending a lead late in the game, taking defensive, uh, being on the ice for defensive zone draws. They they can do things to sort of uh, give him the best chance to succeed as well. Absolutely, and I don't like I don't know I don't know about you, but do you doubt? that the Oilers can maybe outscore their problems for a few, get a few wins that way. Yeah. I mean, the the schedule, <laughs> at least the schedule this week, they've got Dallas tomorrow night. And, you know, Dallas is a 500 hockey team. Uh, that's, that's a game you'd like to win. Then they've got Arizona the very next night. That's the worst team in the league by a mile. So you'd hope to get both of those games. And then if you wrap up the road trip playing Vegas, and Vegas right now has some injuries too, including Jack Eichel, who obviously won't make his debut with the team for three or four more months. But, you know, they already have won one game on the road in Vegas this year. If they get the other one, I mean, you're done going there for the season. The last two times you play the Golden Knights will be in Edmonton. So if they're able to get all three of those games, that really sets you up for success down the line. This is this is a road trip that uh, could really put the team in a in a good position especially with nurse out oh, i hope so <laughs> <laughs> i, so hope I said so it was too, good buddy. i was glad they banked they've banked all these nice early wins now you run into a two three week stretch where maybe right. you can go 500 even you've got those points in the bank at least and uh let's talk about Stuart skinner a little bit now he uh has played the last two games at home and in those two games he allowed only three goals he stopped all sh- the shots he faced in the shootout against the Jets uh, on Thursday as well. And he was in the starters net in practice this morning. So he will likely play the game in Dallas tomorrow night, meaning Miko Koskin will probably play the second half of back-to-backs in Arizona. Um, just what what are your thoughts on Stuart Skinner? How How impressed have you been with his play early on this season? Well, I mean, it's hard not to be impressed. I don't know how you could not be. Uh, even in the game that they lost, was it Detroit he played? He had that yeah. one giveaway, but uh, he played solid there. And then he the last the two team... games, he's played lights out. So, Yeah, he was the Oilers' best player in that game. Uh, they they wouldn't have even been in that game if it wasn't for him. And then if, it's just a real unfortunate thing that he had that gaffe where he shot the puck into the side of his own net Larkin comes in, picks up the loose change and buries it because he had been playing such a stellar game. The Oilers probably deserve to get that to overtime and get at least a point just because of how well he had played. Um, But and then, of course, in Buffalo, he had a really good game, too. And all three goals they scored were off breakaways. And a couple of them, he stopped the first shot, but they buried the rebound. So it's hard to be too mad about any of the starts he's had this year. I just feel like you know he's continued to get better and better, and hopefully he'll be able to bring his record above 500 with a, a win uh, against the Stars tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I don't know how you can. You, it's it's great because with Mike Smith being out and seems like going to be for quite a while longer. Yeah, you need need someone other than Miko because we've kind of shown that he Miko can be good, but if you play him too much, it kind of falls apart yeah you, you uh, so really start having to that see... backup that can not be a backup and be a <laughs> good 1a or 1b whatever you want to call them i mean look at uh the blues that year they called up Biddington, yeah. the hl and 
the rest is history there. I'm not saying that <laughs> Stuart Skinner is going to be Biddington, but I mean, if he can play well and, you know, I mean, man, if he plays this well and he's on a heater this whole time, when Mike Smith does come back, man, that makes the oh, decisions hard for coaching staff because I know Tippett loves himself some Mike Smith, but if you've got Stuart yeah. Skinner being amazing, but what do you do with Miko? You can't send that guy right. anywhere. So and, <laughs> I don't and I know. Do, I do agree with you. The quality does start to fall out of Koskinen's game the more he plays. But um, they, I was worried when Mike Smith went down in the third game of the season how they were going to be able to survive this because yeah. Kos- Koskinen didn't inspire a lot of confidence in this team last season. And then you look at how he's played this year. He's had some very stellar performances, but then he's also had some some bad performances. And it just seems like the the games where he is bad, he lets in one of those backbreaking goals early in the game, and it just you know kind of deflates the team, and they're they're chasing the game from there. But uh, hopefully, with Skinner being able to play more, and if they can at least split the starts, that will benefit him. And um, the, you mentioned the whole Bennington thing. I mean, that's a dream scenario. If Stuart <laughs> Skinner could come in, can you imagine and lead the team to a Stanley Cup in his rookie year? Uh, he'd he'd be a hero in this town forever. But just to even develop into uh, even the backup, the full-time backup here, that would be a, a big story. Because this is the last year the Oilers can send him down to the minors without having him declare waivers. So next year, he's on the team for sure. He's either your starter or your backup. Because you can't afford to like lose this guy that you've been developing for the past five years. And... Mm-hmm. and you know, he, he's shown really well. And, and how big would that be for the Oilers to have a goalie making 750000 with Nurse's new contract kicking in and needing to pay Jesse Pugliarvi and Kyler Yamamoto next summer? Having a goalie making that small of a salary would be a huge win for the Oilers. They need a value contract like that. And maybe they do... Uh, try to trade Smith in the summer and Koskinen's deal is done. Maybe they move on from him and they'll bring in another goalie to work with Skinner or else possibly you just run with Smith and Skinner next season. We don't have to even think that far ahead. But as for this year in particular, uh, I think the way Skinner's playing, he's making a case that he wants to stay in the NHL and not be sent back down to Bakersfield. Absolutely. I was listening to another podcast. They were talking about Koskinen and it was pretty funny because the one guy was saying, yeah, but it, imagine he puts up all these numbers all this year. Do we see a Koskinen like resign? And <laughs> no. everyone's like, oh no. But he's like, but how can you say no if he's got a nine <sighs> nine thirty save percentage and this many wins and just goes yeah. against average. The- I mean, maybe at a lower number is that we always, I'm- a lot of people always said they'd, they didn't mind him or whatever, just not yeah. at that number. That's what they always said about For Chris sure. Russell and all that other stuff too. But I just can't see them re-signing him after he's just yeah. got a reputation of the, you know, like you were saying, those those the the yeah, weak goals beat, or the I first shot goals. He gets weak. He lets in a soft goal almost every game. He gets beat to the glove hand a lot. We all know these things, but. But then there are games, the odd time, where he does steal a game for the Oilers. Now, those games are far and few between, but when he does have one of those excellent performances, it usually uh, does lead to a win for for Edmonton. And uh, the the biggest reason I don't think they can bring Koskinen back is simply it's a numbers game. Uh, I just talked about how Skinner isn't waiver-exempt next year, so you you have to 
think about that. Are you moving on from Mike Smith? I think that he has a he no has one move. more year, doesn't he? Yeah, he signed for next season, but I think he has a no move as well. So he would have to agree to a, a trade. Well, uh, and if Koskinen puts up good numbers, like I was saying, he's not going to want to take less. Right. So, yeah. I mean, that's the Oilers, no good either. I, I think the Oilers have kind of already made it up in, in their mind that that he's not coming back regardless of how well he plays just because they have to start looking at the future. I mean, I know a lot of people have big hopes for Konovalov too, and I really like that prospect as well. He hasn't played as well in the AHL this year, but it is his first year in North America. You have to give him some time. Stuart Skinner took a while to you know, improve his play at that level as well when he started his pro career. I just think at this stage of the game, they they have to be looking at some value. If you can have a goalie who's under a million dollars a year, it allows you to spend money elsewhere. Plus, just Koskinen's going to be a year older. Smith is a year older. To have that that future goalie that you've drafted and developed yourself. I mean, Skinner would be the first goalie that the Oilers have drafted and developed since Devin Dubnik. So it's yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. That. Yeah. Well, and I don't know who's on the UFA list for goalies next season too. Like, uh, uh, I'm not really sure. And, and also, if, if Holland doesn't have to go out at the trade deadline and trade for a goalie, and he can try and upgrade the roster somewhere else because Stuart Skinner has played so well that you don't need to seek out a goalie, I think that's a, a win for the organization too. Yeah, and uh, I mean that Konalalov. How did you say his name? <laughs> Ilya Konalalov. <laughs> if he's those Russian you know, names, right? <laughs> and people are excited about him, but I mean he's yeah. still years away, right? And like like you mm. were saying before, we're in McDavid's seventh year. We got to get going. We don't and, really and have years to wait. You know, we're kind of no. not in building mode anymore. And if you if you look at their prospect pool right now. They do have five legitimate NHL forward prospects. The the only problem is a lot of them are 18, 19 years old, still playing either in junior or in college. And you need that second wave of talent to come in and support the McDavid and Dreisaitl cluster. They're just not ready yet. So because those guys haven't arrived in Edmonton, you're going to have to go out and try and trade for a forward maybe at the deadline this year to upgrade it. And you hate to bump a guy like Kyler Yamamoto out of a spot, especially when he's been playing so much better as of late. But you can never have too much talent the way I look at it. So if the Oilers can add a top six forward at the deadline instead of having to go and trade for a goalie, I think that's huge for them. Definitely. Well, I'll tell you what, Brett, we will call it a night there. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast and chatting all things Oilers hockey with me, giving me a, a ref's perspective on the McDavid situation and just hearing some of your own stories from uh, uh, just your career as an official as well. So uh, before we uh, sign off, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, my It's just at B Luchansky. Uh, Surveyor Brett is my handle and just follow me on there. You come at me with all the missed calls, tag me. <laughs> uh, I sometimes try to give an opinion, but sometimes not well liked. Uh, <laughs> well, my most, my most used, uh, gif is the Homer Simpson backing into the bushes <laughs> on a lot of replies to a lot of video of, uh, missed right. calls, but, uh, I like to have fun with it. I'm not overly sensitive so i mean it's it is what it is but uh, yeah sure. definitely see me on there 
And we really appreciate having you as uh, one of the newest writers at um, heavyhockey.com. I, I enjoyed your first uh, post, uh, an official's take. And I was actually, as the editor of the website, lucky to be, I think, the first person to read it. So that was uh, that, that's one of the benefits of, of the job. And uh, do, do you have another article coming out for us in the next little while? Uh, I don't have anything in the works right now. I mean, <laughs> there's all the McDavid stuff. <laughs> Maybe if I get a chance to sit down and go through some of it, all those numbers and well, drawn calls and uh, missed calls, uh, compilations of all the missed calls, I could maybe write something yeah. up on that. But I've been waiting for uh, something big call to happen to the Oilers. They haven't really mm -hmm. had any. It's a lot of little things. Uh, they haven't well, had anything too crazy as far as uh, suspensions or big hits or disallowed goals in the last 20 seconds or something like that. So. Well, the good thing uh, for we'll writing, yeah, I mean, the uh, the unfortunate thing as an Oilers fan, but the good thing for you writing it is that McDavid not getting calls is always going to be a timely topic. <laughs> so whether whether you write it a week from now, a month from now, or a year from now, there will always be tons of yeah. material out there. But anyway, thanks again, man. I appreciate you coming on the podcast tonight, and I hope you'll be back sometime. Okay, man. Thanks for having me. All right, so for Brett Luchansky, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out. Heavy hockey isn't dead. It's just getting started.